0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb, and I'm Joe McCormick,
1: and it's Saturday. Time for the Vault. Today's episode originally published December tenth, twenty twenty.
0: It's like a circle in a spiral, part two. That's right. This is a, this is a fun one. So let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, and spin around.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb, and I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series about people spinning around in circles. That's right. Part one was was essentially a breakdown of of why we why we feel dizzy uh, w- uh, when we spin around in circles, and then we uh, we also went in just a little bit into the art of spinning around in circles, particularly as it relates to uh, figure skaters and ballet dancers.
1: Now, while figure skaters and ballet dancers I would say regularly practice feats that, that I am in awe of in, in terms of, uh, you know, their athleticism and their ability to spin around and stuff and, and still execute precise movements afterwards. Uh, I gotta say there's one thing that, that maybe makes them not that impressive, which is, you know, they only spin for a few seconds at a time. What if you mm-hmm. were to spin around in a dance performance that lasted for minutes and minutes on end, maybe hours? Who knows?
0: Yeah, and in this we're getting into the realm of um of the whirling dervishes of, of Sufi mysticism, uh the Sufi whirlers uh that you find uh, mostly isolated in in modern-day Turkey but in some other regions as well. And if you haven't seen footage of this, and, and certainly heard the, the corresponding music, I really encourage you to to check it out because it is it is phenomenal. It is uh, it, just to watch it; it's a very meditative experience. I find uh, I, I I've always found this very intriguing. Uh, I think. Uh, you know, I'd seen some clips on TV uh, at some point, and then back in the '90s, at one point, as I was getting increasingly into world music and into dead can dance and stuff, I picked up an album off Hemisphere Records titled "Mevlana: Music of the Whirling Dervishes," and and really uh, was blown o- away by it. Uh, I, I I looked it up again, and I don't think this particular album is available anymore, but you can find uh, the the particular musician is uh, N- Neza that's n-e-z-i-h-u-z-e-l and uh, a couple of their albums are available uh, to stream Uh, it's 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 really interesting stuff now i'm not all that well versed in middle eastern music but it it does seem to have this very rhythmic quality that inspires a certain kind of circular movement even in the mind
1: oh i I really enjoyed the the music too when you shared it with me uh i don't know if i found myself Thinking in circular ways. Did you find yourself ruminating while listening to it?
0: Yeah, I, I played uh, some. Of, I played Yuzel's music for several hours while working on on notes for for these episodes uh, the other day. And yeah, I I found it. I mean, granted, you know, part of it is I am thinking about people spinning around in circles, and then I'm listening to this music that is, of course, uh, innately tied to that practice uh but uh, but yeah i found it found it gave me this kind of like calming circular feeling and and really i think it, it 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 contributed to yesterday being a pretty good day nice
1: uh yeah watching sufi whirling dances is um it's kind of hard to describe exactly the feeling of what's so beautiful about it it is not like a lot of other dances that um, that operate by sort of like surprise where you you know you don't know what move someone's going to do next the, the Sufi whirling dances are extremely monotonous. I mean, they're basically just, uh, th- there might be versions that offer something else, but the versions I've seen mainly just feature th- this repetitive turning in place and yet it is extremely beautiful as a form of dance. Uh, and I think it has something to do with uh, a thing I want to come back to later in this episode, which is the particular movement of the dancers' skirts as they twirl. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of like beautiful geometry to that and uh, there was actually a, a paper I Came across that that addressed how that happens, but um, but yeah, it, it's strange that that such a, in a way, conceptually straightforward type of dance would be so interesting to watch for so long.
0: Yeah, there's a real fluidity to it, and. And you know, we were talking about watching it because, of course, that's 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 my experience with it—seeing uh, it done, listening to the music—and uh, it's my understanding that if you, uh, you know, if you're, if you're to travel to say Turkey, you can certainly, as a tourist, uh, see some of it today, observe it as a tourist. But of course, it's really based more in the experience of the dance of being the dancer, and I guess you can say that's kind of the case with a lot of dance. Like it's there's dance to watch, but. The dance uh, is also the experience, and to be the dancer is to be within the system of movement. Yeah, so let's let's unpack things a little bit. Yes, Sufi Islam, Sufism, uh, is, is the mystical branch of Islam in which the practitioner seeks divine love and knowledge through the direct experience of God. Uh, it entails different mystical paths towards this goal, uh, but the one we're going to be talking about here is, of course, this form of dance. The word Sufi itself derives from the Arabic for wool as early Islamic ascetics, individuals who practice the denial of physical or psychological desires dressed in woolen garments. And uh, Islamic mysticism is also known as uh, tasawuf, which literally means to dress in wool. The movement originally stirred up between 661 and 749 CE, apparently in response to perceptions of worldliness in Islamic practice at the time.
1: I find it interesting that the mystical tradition can sort of arise as a form of almost any religion, like that mm-hmm. you can take almost any religion and then there will – there can be a mysticism interpretation of it, which again is often focused on um, individual experience and people having practices such as meditation or other practices to alter the state of consciousness to make themselves – have what they believe to be a direct experience of the divine in some way, and that there there's Christian mysticism and there's Islamic mysticism and there's a mystical face of almost any religion you can imagine.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and, and of course, in pretty much any religion you can look at too, it it's a divide that can create uh, problems that can, can create conflict as well. Um, so, uh, again, out of this, out of Sufi Islam, uh, we, we see the Sufi whirling emerge. And I, I imagine a lot of you out there have heard of a key individual in, in this, and that is the Persian poet Rumi, who lived 1207 through 1273 And he himself was a Sufi mystic. Again, he dies in uh, 1273 CE. And afterwards, uh, his followers and his son, Sultan uh, Walad, create the Mevlevi Order, an organization of whirling dervishes who sought to experience God through elaborate rituals of dance and music. And this was formed uh, in 1312 in the Turkish city of Kanya. Now, many of you may have seen, you know, images and videos of of Sufi whirling uh, and, uh, and, you know, the the dervishes wear these tall camel hair hats that are said to represent the tombstone of the ego, which I really like. (laughs) Uh, And then they have these wide, white skirts that twirl around. And of course, these are very visually impressive and certainly play on that concept of whirling and turning. But these are said to represent the ego's shroud.
1: Oh, I love that. And. It's funny because that might be a little bit more literal than people would think. Well, I mean, I guess it, it can be, you can't have something that's too literal if you're talking about the ego, which is an intangible concept. But um, the way in which it is somewhat literal is that it's not just you are wearing a symbolic piece of dress, but that when you watch somebody practicing a, a Sufi whirling dance, you will, I think, very often find yourself not looking at the person. Not looking at right. their face, but looking at the twirling skirt. The twirling skirt almost becomes the person. So so it's a kind of uh, second-order uh, vanishing of the identity or the ego.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the big ceremony here is the Sema Ceremony, and in, the, in this ceremony, the Dervish dancers rotate anti-clockwise around the vertical axis of their bodies while also rotating around the other dancers. It's all set to this, this wonderful music, and it's intended to be a meditative experience, a highly meditative experience by which, for the dancers, their material self falls away and a state of oneness is experienced.
1: Yes. And so you can obviously look at the, the religious, the symbolic, the, uh, the psychological importance and, and significance of this dance. But another way to think about this dance is just as a physical act. And it comes back to questions that I, you know, that we brought up in our earlier episode in in the first part of this series, which is I watch it and I think just on a physiological level, how do you do that without becoming so dizzy that you have to stop?
0: yeah because we 're talking about a lot of spinning. You may have just seen clips of this, but the dancers will spin continuously for a solid hour with something like thirty spins per minute uh, the The performance is, this, they perform this without experiencing vertigo without you know feeling dizzy, following a reported thousand days of training within the Mevlevi houses uh to 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 give a, a, another number uh to you according to the guinness book of world records the most sufi whirling revolutions in 1 hour for a male uh the, the record went to um Shafiq Ibrahim on January 5th 2012 for 2905 spins in a single hour wow yeah
1: I, I have no words that's that's so many spins
0: yeah it's just it's it's a tremendous amount of spinning um and and not only is the individual not like physically ill from it uh not only are they they you know re- retaining this uh this fluid movement and this elegance, and they're not crashing into each other or the walls uh they they're keeping it beautiful, but they're also uh you know they're said to have this 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 meditative experience throughout it all, so it's not you know dizziness. Is, is in many ways feels like the opposite of um, of a meditative uh, experience. I mean, to a certain extent, you could I guess you compare some things about it. But but yeah, whatever, whatever is going on in the mind of the, the of the the Sufi whirler of the of the the whirling dervish, it is not a state of dizzied chaos. Uh, so it's it's fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would also think of dizziness as sort of the opposite of a meditative state. Dizziness makes mm-hmm. you hyper aware of your body and makes it really difficult to focus your mind.
0: Right. I guess the, the main comparison would be, well, you're, you're living in the now now, aren't you? <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're, you're clutching your head uh, on the ground, uh, but not in the way that you want to feel in the moment. So uh, I, I looked into this, and I found an interesting paper titled A Possible Role of Prolonged Whirling Episodes on Structural Plasticity of the Cortical Networks and Altered Vertigo Perception, the cortex of Sufi whirling dervishes by Kalmak et al. And this was a, this was combining researchers from New Zealand, the Netherlands, and Turkey. Particularly, their study looked at quote potential structural cortical plasticity unquote in Sufi whirling dervishes. They use uh, SWDs as the um, the abbreviation uh, because again, we're talking about a level of sustained spinning that most healthy adults are not going to be able to handle. Uh, without experiencing vertigo. Mm -hmm. As they put it, quote, this unique whirling-based meditation style of Sufi whirling dervishes achieves extraordinary physiological outcomes that overcome vertigo and balance impairment, which would be expected after prolonged times of whirling. Mm -hmm. So they looked at, quote, potential relationship of the motion-body perception related cortical networks and the prolonged term of whirling ability without vertigo or dizziness. So of note here, again, is the vestibular system, which of course we went into and defined in the uh, in the first episode, you know, related to inner ear and our the inner ear and our sense of balance. They point out that vestibular processing is involved not only in space perception and locomotion, but also in cognitive perceptions of self. And so there is this connection, they say, between uh, the vestibular system and the default mode network as well. Something we've also discussed on the show quite a bit tied to self-awareness to consciousness, to embodiment, but also in many cases, unhappiness, mm-hmm. you know, this, this uh, dwelling on what has happened in the past, what has happened to me, what is happening in the, what will happen in, in, uh, to me in the future, uh, et cetera. And, and, you know, getting away from that nowness that we often associate with a meditative calm.
1: Yeah. Uh, the default mode network, I think, is highly associated with cognitive patterns that are focused on the self thinking about the self and making judgments about the self. And, I mean, what's more miserable than that?
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, that we're talking about wheeling and spinning because – the, 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 you know, the, the, the sort of thinking associated with uh, the default mode network uh, sometimes takes the form of a wheel in other belief systems, you know, like some some treatments or interpretations of the like the wheel of being in, in Buddhism kind of relate to this, you know, or just sort of the feeling of like, oh, I'm on the uh, I'm on the hamster wheel of my own default mode network right now. I've got to eject myself from that wheel uh, and do something with my time. So the question is, does prolonged whirling contribute to structural changes in the networks of the default mode network and self-perception in addition to motion perception related networks? Mm -hmm. So the the authors point out that previous studies have observed, uh, first of all, that uh, decreased cortical thickness in meditators' brains relate to the uh, posterior cingulate cortex or PCC and the default mode network also decreased activity in the default mode network. As well as long ter- – and also they point out long-term meditation practice is associated with altered resting brain activity. So long-lasting activity changes that persist in the brain. In a way,
1: you could think about meditation as a way of practicing control over what the brain does when at rest.
0: Right, yeah. And, you know, it's – it's you know, we, we've talked about meditation on the show in the past. And I'm sure we'll continue to because it is uh, – it can It can feel very elusive at times. and I think part of it comes down to this connection between the mind and body, you know that that um, I mean, that's why I think a lot of us find meditation in meditative states or even the, the flow state, in activities that are physical, you know, mm-hmm. like in uh, in yoga, for instance, um, or or um, you know even you know other type forms of exercise, like swimming laps, running laps, going for a jog, that sort of thing.
1: Yes, though, I feel like I would identify more of that meditative type flow state in physical tasks that also require some degree of constant uh, sort of mental engagement more so than say jogging does. Um, yeah you know like I've heard some people complain that maybe uh, they can enjoy sports, but they find quote exercise boring and I think what they're thinking of is like running on a treadmill. In which, yeah. like, in which case, um, you are engaging your body, but you are not you are not being faced with tasks. You know, there's not like any problems for your brain to solve the way there is when you're, say, playing a sport or something, or doing something with um, doing something with like variable activities throughout, such as like a, a yoga practice or a or a you know a dance routine or something.
0: Yeah. Well, but I guess if you're like, say, jogging around the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. you're having to solve various problems, right? Like, okay, I'm going to not run onto that sidewalk that's all crooked. I'm going to jump over that dog and I'm not going to step in that, that, or that, right? Mm -hmm. Though it's funny because
1: I feel like that just manifests as extreme annoyance.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Yeah. It it comes like there's a a thin line sometimes between. um, Uh, uh, tasks that are fulfilling and tasks that are just a chore. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've
1: talked before about how um, sometimes when you're driving in a car, it can make other people just appear as obstacles to you. There's this kind of horrible desensitization that goes on. And we talked about one reason for that being that, um, that perhaps the you know, updating the body schema to include the car makes you feel bigger, looking at people through the glass of the windshield, uh, operating on, you know, the different rules of tr- that control traffic versus control foot movements. Those things could mm-hmm. be separating you. But I think another one that maybe we didn't consider enough when we've talked about this in the past is just speed. Because when you're out running on the sidewalk, it seems like you have a very different relationship to other people than if you're out walking. When you're out running, you start to view other people as like obstacles in the same kind of way you do you're when you're in a car you're like this person's in my way they're not even really a person this is just like a sack of meat that i need to get around
0: (laughs) yeah uh, you know i'm not myself a a runner but i do i i get i I get hints of that from other runners sometimes So uh, for, for this particular study, the authors are going to look at, um, at, at Sufi whirlers. Now, one thing they note, though, is that the practice of Mevlevi ceremonies, uh, they're not as robust as they were prior to the 20th century due to uh, secular policies that were enforced. So a lot of what remains today apparently isn't as rigorous and is often aimed at, at tourist audiences. So it's difficult to study, quote, the traditional physical and spiritual method involved here. As a result, you know, it's not a huge sample size they're working with. Mm -hmm. So they looked at eight males and two females, uh, adults, right-handed traditional Sufi whirling dervishes with more than eight years of whirling meditation experience. So the average was something like 10 and a half years of whirling, uh, which I think broke down to about like two whirling sessions per week to keep the practice up. They also had a 10-person control group that was otherwise matched up with the attributes of, of the individuals uh, that were themselves whirlers. They performed MRI scans and found an average difference in cortical thickness of 0.10 millimeters for the left hemisphere of the brain and 0.15 millimeters for the right hemisphere of the brain. So they present this as proof of structural plasticity induced by the whirling meditations of Sufi whirling dervishes. Hmm. Now, one of the take homes uh, uh, from this study is that this sort of information could lead to some improvements in vertigo therapy. Uh, and, and I also imagine it goes back to what we mentioned in the last episode about you know, the more we understand this sort of thing, the more we can understand just to how the brain functions, how the brain can heal itself, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But they also stress that there's a lot of possibility in the, the potential uh, mood-enhancing effect of the defined structurally plastinated cortical areas um, and, and, and how that is worth consideration. So they point out that the default mode network is active except when it is suppressed by other networks – ...or stimulated by other states, and that its activity, of course, is generally correlated with unhappiness in the human experience. Quote, therefore, it is theorized that prolonged periods of goal-directed cognitive processes may decrease the mind-wandering activity in the SWD's brain because the precuneus activity has been decreased. They also theorize that the suppression of cortical areas related with the discriminational perception uh, here... Leads to less selfish, egocentric behavior and increased levels of happiness. And they think that the decreased activity in the uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex may contribute to the behavioral attribute of honesty. Hmm. And additionally, there could be a neuroprotection advantage here as well. You know, against the likes of say Alzheimer's and and, and other um, conditions.
1: Well I guess like a lot of neuroimaging and neurological studies it it opens up a lot of possibilities that you should we should be careful to remember aren't necessarily proven yet but are right. really interesting and worth looking into with other experiments.
0: Yeah, like there are a lot of questions about the default mode network, for example, and and just about anything else you could point out in the human brain.
1: Well, yeah, Um, we've even talked about how there are some people, I think, who question the validity of the default mode network as a coherent concept. And like, is this really a thing? But um, yeah, uh, but but there are others who advocate for it. So I don't know how to sort that question out
0: yeah I would say that some of the key takeaways from this study though are that that first of all this incredible act of spinning by um, by the the Sufi whirlers it is it is producing like physical changes in the brain like there is there is uh, neuroplasticity involved here. And, uh, you know, it is It is also a meditative state they enter into, and you don't have to, it's not really a stretch to say that, yes, meditative states, uh, repetitive med- meditative states, meditative, meditative states that are engaged in with, with a fair amount of frequency, that has an effect on your resting um, neural level. Uh, so all of that is uh, you know really fascinating, makes me you know respect this tradition even more. And I have to say it, it makes me want to spin more in my life. Um, <laughs> well, wait, it, I,
1: don't, I mean it's, it seems difficult that like is it a thing where you'd have to do it a lot to get used to
0: it enough to get the benefits from it? Is that the case? I guess I mean yes, that's it. certainly to, well to spin at their level. It mm-hmm. require I mean they they prescribe what uh, what I say a thousand days of uh, of practice oh, boy. to to get to the point where you could actually partake of this ceremony, um, but I mean just in terms of uh, like on you know, on one level, it may I want to do it just because I I fail at it so much now, like the idea. That I can change my brain, that I can change (laughs) myself to spin better, like to, to not feel like my soul has been ripped out of my body when I spin around five times Mm -hmm. on a yoga mat. Uh, like that, that alone is attractive, you know? The, the idea that like, yeah, I'm, I can, I can change and become this slightly different version of myself. And, you know, it's also worth noting that, um, you know, while this is the most, um, Intriguing and probably the the most extreme example of spinning dance. There are a lot of spinning and circular dance traditions in other regions of, of the world, you know, maybe not as intense, but certainly the circular form pops up in traditions around the world. So uh, I wonder if if just uh, even those cases, you have a certain level of, of flow state and meditative calm that overcomes you when you're a part of it. I I don't have a lot of direct experience with that, uh, aside from what square dancing and PE class when I was a kid, which is (laughs) not at all the same thing. God, I also
1: had to do square dancing and PE. That was bizarre. Absolutely
0: bizarre. (laughs) It's a terrible time for it, um, I, yeah. I feel. But at the same time, after looking at all this, I'm like, yes, they they were right to make us dance around in circles and move our bodies and spin. Kids need a spin, like we discussed in the previous episode. And, uh, yeah, why not make them square dance, I guess?
1: So there's another aspect of Sufi whirling that I wanted to talk about uh, because I, I found a strange paper. I alluded to this earlier. Uh, Uh, But just to reintroduce the concept again, so you watch one of these Sufi whirling ceremonies and there's the music and there's uh, just the human factor, you know, being interested in in other people's religious practices and all that. But there's this other aspect that makes the dance especially beautiful and interesting, and it's the movement of the dancer's skirts. Now, you mentioned earlier that there's this symbolic role of the skirts representing, you know, the shroud of the ego. And uh, I, I think that is, th- there's something very much to that, even as it comes through in the way the dancers look from the outside. But there's also something about the skirts that's undeniably a part of the raw visual appeal of the dance to outside observers. As the dancer twirls, The skirt is sort of lifted into the air by the the centripetal force of the rotation, but it is not lifted up in a perfect uniform circle. Instead, what you get are these odd, gorgeous, hypnotic patterns of ripples with peaks and troughs as if there were waves in a fluid moving through the fabric. And -hmm. while watching it, it is very easy to just space out. It's like it's a visual stimulus that creates a feeling that's, at least to me, it's very similar to watching the undulations of a jellyfish.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And so
1: the question is, what causes these sort of mesmerizing patterns of movement in the surface of these turning skirts? And believe it or not, there is a physics paper about this. Uh so this is called Whirling Skirts and Rotating Cones in the New Journal of Physics published in twenty thirteen by Jamal Guvin, uh J. A. Hanna, and Martin Michael Muller. And they put a very technical description to these hypnotic movements that I was just talking about. They call it they they say quote, steady dihedrally symmetric patterns with sharp peaks may be observed on a spinning skirt. Lagging behind the material flow of the fabric, mm. and so uh, this is quoted in a in a Phys.org article by co-author James Hanna. "Quote: The dancers don't do much but spin around at a fixed speed, but their skirts show these very striking, long-lived patterns with sharp cusp-like features, which seem rather counterintuitive." And I think it's partially that counterintuitive aspect that makes the skirts so interesting to watch. There, there's a there's a soothing rhythm to how the skirts move, but they also seem to sort of defy physics. They don't look like they're moving in the way that they should. Are you watching an example?
0: I'm. I'm, I'm- Picturing it in my head, yeah as I, as I said here, staring into the zoom camera i'm uh, I'm imagining that's the hypnotic circular movements of the dancers, yeah,
1: yeah, uh, like sometimes the skirts kind of resemble the way that uh if you watch a helicopter blade spinning on film uh if mm-hmm. the 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 shutter speed of the camera lines up in the right way with the rotation uh with you know with the rotations per minute of the helicopter blade, it will look like the blade is spinning backwards. Yeah, there's a similar kind of thing that sometimes goes on with the apparent peaks and and waves in the skirt. Uh, So anyway, what, what explains this? Well, I thought the answer they came up with here was pretty interesting. They found that the patterns of movement in a free flowing, nearly symmetrical cone shaped structure, like the fabric of a dancer's skirt, are largely influenced by the Coriolis force. Quote, a perturbative analysis of nearly axis symmetric cones shows that Coriolis forces are essential in establishing skirt-like solutions. <laughs> huh. Skirt-like solutions. I, I love it when you know physicists come up with like a physics way of describing something that you would never <laughs> normally hear uh, put into those terms. Uh, but so Coriolis forces are, are themselves very interesting. They are responsible for – Uh, For example, determining the rotation of weather patterns in the atmosphere of Earth. Uh, The Coriolis effect is a name for the deflection of the motion of free-flowing materials on a rotating surface. Now, this is one of those things that can be kind of hard to understand intuitively, but uh, I'll do my best with an analogy. Imagine you're trying to play catch with someone, so you're throwing a baseball back and forth. But you're throwing a baseball back and forth On a (laughs) merry-go-round, suddenly you can't just throw in a straight line, right? You know, if I'm trying to throw to you on the other side of the merry-go-round and I throw straight at you, suddenly the ball from our point of view will appear to curve off target in some bizarre way, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's because you are moving, right? I throw the ball in a straight line. It does go in a straight line, but you move. And so it looks like the ball just flew off to the side in the middle of its, uh, uh, traveling. And it's because we're in a rotating reference frame. A similar thing takes place on larger rotating reference frames, such as the Earth itself. When you have free-flowing patterns of fluid, you know, such as uh, weather, you know, it's fluids moving through fluids, it's, it's uh, clouds or, or winds moving through air. These are affected by the rotation of the Earth, causing winds to typically form clockwise patterns in the northern hemisphere and counterclockwise patterns in the southern hemisphere. And apparently, when a Sufi dancer twirls, the rotation of the skirt also gives rise to Coriolis forces in the patterns of the fabric. Uh, Hmm. To quote James Hanna again in that that Physorg article, quote, The flow of a sheet of material is much more restrictive than the flow of the atmosphere, but nonetheless, it results in Coriolis forces. What we found was that this flow and the associated Coriolis forces plays a crucial role in forming the dervish-like patterns. Uh, and the authors actually came up with equations to describe these effects in in free-flowing conical materials like the fabric of a skirt. And so now you have an equation that can show you the skirt-like solutions.
0: Yeah, we, we will not read it out to you. you have to look it up yeah. uh, for yourself. Because <laughs> I found a similar situation in our first episode where we talked about spinning kicks. And uh-huh. I found a post about the physics of a spin kick. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was just, it was, uh, there was just no sense in getting into it because it, it would just be me reading out an equation.
1: Right. But anyway, I, I don't for some reason I found something oddly beautiful about this study.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it it also seems kind of fitting, right? Given the, the, the mystical nature of it, you know, and uh, and, and the, the idea of there being this mathematical pattern underlying uh what we see when we uh witness this particular tradition, you know? Mhm.
1: Now, speaking of uh, cultural traditions about spinning around in circles, another one came to mind while we were getting ready for this episode, and it is something you may have seen at a baseball game. It is the dizzy bat race.
0: <laughs> you know, I had completely forgotten about this until you shared a clip of people doing it. Uh-huh. So this is when the, the the first step is you take a baseball bat and you put the... Um, I don't know the the, the club end uh, on the uh, on the ground. Does the end matter? I don't know. Yeah, and and then well, I guess it. Ma- I don't know if it matters. May- maybe it doesn't. But then, well, one end of the bat is on the ground, and the other end of the bat is on your forehead. So you're bending and over. Then, yeah, and you're bending over, and then you start spinning around three Stooges style around mm-hmm. it. Right. Yep. Yep. Spin around in circles.
1: And then you got to do something. You got to run somewhere. I, I don't think it really matters after that. You just, the goal is you get a couple people out of the audience who've maybe been having a few stadium beers. I, I mean, that's, probably watered-down beer, but it's still beer. They've got some alcohol in their system. Alcohol <laughs> does affect the vestibular system, as we know, uh, and, then, and then you make it even worse by having them spin around a bunch of times and then say, like, hey, run and try to catch this hot dog or something, and they'll typically stumble all over the place. In one example we were looking at, one of the guys runs straight into the stands and falls <laughs> over the wall.
0: Oh, yeah, it's quite a wipeout. But then he's right back in his feet. yeah going like, Did you see that, bro? <laughs> <laughs> so generally, as you said, this this sport is presented as an impromptu competition that one has not trained for. But based on everything we've discussed here, um, you know training would be able to help you. Uh, you know the untrained performance seems to be key to the dizzy bat race, but if you were to train for it, you could potentially be in a better position to excel at it.
1: Oh yeah, like training like a Sufi dancer or like a uh, or like a ballerina or a uh, figure skater. You just dizzy bat yourself for hours a day, every day, until <laughs> you can become the ultimate dizzy bat hustler. And like nobody knows when you go in that oh, I'm going to be better at catching the hot dog or whatever it is. I don't know why I said hot dog. I guess that's another thing that's at baseball stadiums.
0: Yeah, well they may do a hot dog version. I guess one of the versions I was looking at is like you do the the, the dizzy bat thing. You, you spin around mm-hmm. and then you have to run to like first base. Okay. And it's yeah, to see yeah. if you can run in a straight line and then you it's your time, right? It's like they time you on it. Mm-hmm. So, um, I have a potential answer to this. It's not a scientific answer, but I come to it via another, uh, physical activity that involves spinning and that's the world of professional wrestling. Oh boy. Um, so, I knew we'd end up back here. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect to talk about uh, about pro wrestling in this uh, at all. Um, aside, well, I guess I already did. I did bring it up briefly. Um, yeah. What was the, the elbow the something
1: from from Japanese wrestling?
0: Yeah, like a roaring elbow where you get you spin around and do an elbow, and it's uh, you know it's flashy looking. Cool. But uh, but there are a couple of other more famous spinning maneuvers. So one of them, and I, tell me if you've seen these before, Joe. Mm-hmm. One is the airplane spin. This is when one wrestler puts another in a fireman's carry, you know, uh, up on their shoulders. Right. And then they spin around more or less like a whirling dervish mm-hmm. before dumping them over. And then the idea is you're both dizzy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the other version is the giant swing. And in this one, one wrestler grabs the legs... Uh, of the other, in a like a wheelbarrow hold, and then spins them around like a centrifuge, mm-hmm. and then eventually releases them. Now, there are a couple of other variants, but these are the main spinning moves.
1: Uh, so I guess the idea in the the giant swing is that you are attempting to spin around until the intracranial pressure of the blood flowing up to the top of their head kills them. Right? Is the, is that an execution <laughs> move? It's a finishing move in Mortal um, combat
0: generally yeah i guess in mortal combat it would it would yeah, make the top of your head fly off and your brain splat against the the camera or something but in pro pro wrestling both of these moves generally play out this way like you spin your opponent around until they're dizzy you're dizzy as well but then you take advantage and you either pin the person or uh or it gives you a chance to do another maneuver on them and then uh, potentially win uh, a lot of times it's kind of played up for comedy though like oh you did the airplane spin and now both people are dizzy and they can't punch each other and they're kind of doing a, you know, kind of a dizzy bat humor spot where like, oh, now we can't connect. And it's a good way to kind of like break down the action for a little bit. seems like a move that
1: the bushwhackers would have done. Remember them?
0: (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I've often dismissed the move because I think, oh, well, that just makes you both dizzy. It's not very realistic. What's the point of making your opponent really dizzy if you yourself are equally dizzy? Mm Mm-hmm. But given everything we've talked about here, it absolutely makes sense that a wrestler who regularly uses a spinny move or just trains in spinning would be less affected by the maneuver and could then, you know, better utilize it in a match. Okay course the the reverse would be true as well right if you in in kayfabe within the within the fiction of pro wrestling if you knew you were going to go up against someone who uses a move like this say uh hiroshi Hayes or cesaro or daniel bryan you could train and prepare for it so that they wouldn't be able to you know to 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 uh, to use it effectively against you i don't think i don't think that's ever been used uh, from a wrestling psychology standpoint but <laughs> it seems like it could be a good angle I'm imagining the Ric Flair monologue now.
1: You can't use that <laughs> roll on me. It's Rolex time.
0: <laughs> you could have a training montage of somebody spinning around in circles, preparing for their match, and then you know making themselves less susceptible to the move. Uh uh-huh. But but outside of the fictional world of the you know of the match itself, uh, the other question, of course, is: Do wrestlers like the ones I just mentioned do they adapt to using the maneuver? You know, if you're using a, an airplane spin or a giant swing. In you know a couple of times a week or just regularly you know in your matches, mm-hmm. do you come, become less susceptible to dizziness? Yeah, and I, I couldn't find a real answer on this. I looked around a little bit for you know interviews and all, uh, but I did find footage of a dizzy bat competition <laughs> featuring wwe wrestlers and one of the wrestlers was this guy cesaro who who uses this um this giant swing a lot in his matches and has also i think i one in one case he used 100 revolutions in a single match wow so so yeah he'll really get spinning and he has another spinning move called a ufo which is basically an inverted airplane spin that's also very impressive uh to, to see performed so it raises like it's, it raises the question: How is he going to do in this in this dizzy bat competition? And it, you know this is very unscientific. He only was competing against I think two other people, but he did win. He had better time doing the Dizzy Bat thing and then running out to first base. He, he had better time than either competitor. That's so, That's interesting. Yeah. So ma- there you go. Maybe, maybe it does. Uh, 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 maybe there is a way to prepare for the Dizzy Bat uh, competition and maybe spinning around a lot in pro wrestling does you know, produce these results. I mean, it, it makes complete sense based on everything we've looked at.
1: I think what it means is that Cesaro has a future in ice skating or ballet,
0: I, probably so. I mean, professional dance and professional wrestling have a lot in common. Oh, and, yeah. uh, I mean, he's a hoss. He could do it. Well, what that makes me wonder
1: is, are there any well-known pro wrestlers who were also professional dancers in something that is acknowledged as dance?
0: Um, I don't know. I'm not sure on that offhand. It seems like there there might be. I mean, you have... Wrestlers coming in with all sorts of backgrounds, um, you know, certainly gymnastics backgrounds in some cases. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's there's one out there that has some sort of a dance background. Hulkster was he also a square dancing champion? <laughs> I don't know if the Hulkster was a, a square, square dancing champion. No, um, but my, I'm trying to remember if he ever did the giant swing. He might have. I can't recall. Well,
1: on the subject of, of airplane spins as, a, as an offensive move, I guess we've come full circle to like imbison territory. There was another thing <laughs> I was thinking about when we were doing this episode that was, um, it was a Simpsons episode with a certain type of spinning torture as hazing. It's the episode where Bart and Lisa, uh, get enrolled in a military academy. And there's a scene oh, where yes. they're being hazed, and they're apparently strapped to airplane propellers, and then the, the airplane runs, so they like spin around with the propeller. Uh, that's a different kind of spinning than we're usually talking about, because we're talking about uh, spinning along a different axis of the body. This would be, again, more like the giant swing. This would be like centrifuging you. Uh, and while it's funny in the show, I think I would have to say uh, my suspicion is that this would be absolutely 100% fatal in reality. It would just like, you know, shove all the blood in your body up to the top of your head and kill you.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it basically comes back to the Moonraker example that we talked about earlier, you know, where uh, there's a scene in Moonraker where James Bond is put in a centrifuge as Mm -hmm. torture, right? Yeah. Uh, It's a a, the
1: the G-forces simulator for astronauts. Yeah. Except I think that's different because the way his body's oriented, the way I thought it was supposed to be was that the G-forces would be operating the other way. It'd be like taking the blood out of his head, you know, and pulling it toward his feet like would normally happen. Oh, yeah, yeah. Though I don't know. That's the
0: way it would normally happen.
1: Well, actually, I don't know because if the astronauts are – the astronauts are usually seated, well, with the the back of their bodies facing the – Facing the 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 exhaust, right? So maybe that would just mean that the blood is pulled not up or down your body, but toward the back of your body, toward the back of your skull.
0: Mm, yeah, I guess and it would also depend on the maneuver you're taking in the airplane. But mm-hmm. but certainly when you're talking about um, the the effects of of g-force on the blood flow in the body, particularly Mm -hmm. blood flow to the brain, that's where you can get into hypoxia territory where not enough blood and oxygen is reaching the brain. And you can certainly lose consciousness that way, um, which is, of course, extra dangerous if you are also piloting an aircraft, um, especially if you're piloting an aircraft that is, uh, say, in a spin or something Mm -hmm. uh, like that. So, um, yeah, the idea of this being a potentially lethal way to torment uh, Bart and Lisa. uh, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: What is it? There's some movie where that's, there's like a scene where a character has to execute a move in an airplane or a spaceship or something that they know is going to cause them to lose consciousness due to G forces and they have to like recover in time. Do you, does that ring in a bell for
0: you? Oh, it vaguely does. I mean, this kind of thing comes up a fair amount in, in films about, um, about to say fighter crafts and all so Mm -hmm. it could have been some of the usual suspects there like the like top gun or that one where clint eastwood flies a sr-71 or some version of it i don't Um, know that one yeah i I forget what it was i always wanted to watch it as a kid because i remember really loving the sr-71 and the the sr-71 blackbird which was Mm -hmm. probably you know it was a reconnaissance aircraft that could fly super fast super high altitude Uh, is that right um I, th- I think it got at a pretty high altitude as well. Not to be confused with the U-2, which just does, you know, really long wings and is a um, high altitude uh, reconnaissance. Uh-huh. But uh, the SR-71 was beautiful. And the he's supposed to be flying a fighter plane in this in this uh, film that's based on the SR-71, or maybe they use an SR-71 stand-in. And I used to see the, the VHS copy and think, oh, that-, that looks like such a great movie. Uh-huh. And I think later I did see it, and it's it's not great. <laughs> uh, but it has a cool plane in it, so what can you do? But to come back to video games, certainly anyone who's ever played a flight simulator, you know that uh, if you, you, you take on too many G-forces, the screen's going to go black or the screen's going to go red. You know, you're going to potentially black out or red out based mm. on the G-forces. Mm. Oh, and by the way, that Clint Eastwood movie was 1982's Firefox. Uh, I had to look it up to make sure that I was uh, you know, giving everybody the, uh, the, uh, the full uh, uh, recommend there. Directed by Clint Eastwood, starring Clint Eastwood. Um, oh, and it had Ronald uh, Lacey in it uh, of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark fame who played uh, you know, the, the villainous Tott, uh, 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 the SS officer.
1: Wait, what? Is, oh, I see. You. I'm confusing this. The, the name of the movie you're talking about with the movie that I watched as a child called Firebirds, not Firefox. This was a helicopter action movie starring Nicolas Cage. Uh, Yeah, it had Nicolas Cage and Tommy Lee Jones and Sean Young and I think some other recognizable character actors. And I remember there's a scene where Nicolas Cage has to, like, drive a car with one of his eyes covered up looking through a periscope in order to train his brain.
0: (laughs) Oh, nice. Well, that's a perfect place to, to close out here because so much of what we've talked about, it comes down to training the brain, uh, of the brain becoming used to what the body is, uh, is going through and, and altering the way that it understands the signals that are delivered to it. All right, we're gonna go ahead and close out these episodes here then. Um, Obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody uh, out there about these episodes. You know, what are your experiences with spinning around in circles uh, related to say dance? Uh, Do we have skaters and dancers? I know we have at least one uh, um, individual who listens to the show with a ballet background. We'd love to hear from them on this. Um, Also, do we have any Sufi listeners who would like to uh, chime in on either the the experience of the Sufi whirling or just uh, the, the place that that it has uh, within uh, the religion, uh, you know, basically any, any anything you have to add or if you just have stuff about video games and movies, we'll also uh, be happy to listen to you on, on that front as well. Totally. In the meantime, if you'd like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find it. You can find it anywhere you get a podcast. And wherever that happens to be, if they let you, uh, rate, review, and subscribe because that helps us out. Go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, and that will shoot you over to the iHeart listing for our page. There's a store button. Go there if you want to buy a shirt with a monster or a logo on it. And uh, I, I know some of you are probably intrigued by the, the mention of, the, of the, the whirling dervishes, the video, and, the, and of course, the music. Uh, I'm going to put a post up about that at my, uh, my website, samudamusic.com. Uh, that's just a little impersonal uh, blog that I do. Uh, you know, l- Low-key blogging, I call it. Uh, but I'll do a post there about, uh, about the, the music that will have a few links for you and some embedded video that you can check out if you so desire.